You are listening to Word Up, a place where we share our stories because who we are matters. Welcome back to Word Up. Thank you so much for joining me here again. Um, I really want to thank all of you for the positive feedback that I've been receiving over the last little while. Uh, You know, when I first started this podcast, I didn't know if anybody would listen. uh, And it makes my heart really warm and fuzzy and joyful um, to be getting so many wonderful comments from you as listeners. So thank you, Chimigwitch. Um, and I would also like to shout out that you can follow us on Twitter at listen to word up. I promise to one day actually up my game and join Instagram. But until then, you can follow me on Twitter. Um, today, we are moving to Roland Michener Secondary School in South Porcupine with my friends, Amy Rochon and her student, Joseph Bierman, and uh, the ISA Mc- Kenzie Young is also there. You will notice today um, that we did have some audio problems when we were doing the recording. Uh, And for those of you who know me, you know I talk too much. And in this particular podcast, um, I'm definitely more of a dominating voice just because of some of the technical issues we were having. So my apologies um, to RMSS because you guys are not featured as much as I would have liked you to have been, but your questions were amazing. Your energy was fantastic. And it was a real pleasure to, to collaborate with you on this interview. I'd also like to give a quick shout out to the Kanagami Book Club, who have eagerly been awaiting this interview with Wabagishik Rice. He is the author of Moon of the Crested Snow, and if you have not read it, man, you need to get out there and uh, find yourself a copy because it's a phenomenal book. Uh, especially during this pandemic. And he's just really a cool guy to listen to. It was a great conversation. So enough of me rambling. Let's get to this interview. Today, I'm really excited to have a student and teacher from Roland Michener. So maybe if you guys want to introduce yourselves. Uh, my name is Amy Roshan, and I'm a teacher at Roland Michener Secondary School. This uh, I'm non-Indigenous, but was raised by an Ojibwe stepfather from a Tajwan First Nation. Um, it was really nice to read about a small northern community and actually feel the personal connection to attending and hearing words like Anishinaabe. Miigwech. Thank you very much. Hey, um, you are now. Um, I'm Joe. I'm going to be bringing the questions. It is nice to meet you. Um, I'm not an indigenous myself, but I do have an indigenous brother, so. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> cool. So, I'm Mackenzie Young. I'm the indigenous student advisor here at Rome Mister. Um, I'm from the Talking First Nation. I'm an Anishinaabe Quay. Um, it was really great reading your book because, like, Every time when I would read it, I would just visualize my own reserve that I'm from, and it would make me think of my family and that side. So it was really nice having that connection and being able to relate in that way to something that's, um, you know, being represented in our school. So miigwech. how Very cool. Well, thank you guys so much for for joining me today with our special guest. I'm excited to hear your questions uh, and to learn along with you. Today, we are honored to have Wabaki Shikrais joining us. He is Anishinaabe from Wasoxing First Nation. His first short story collection, Midnight Sweat Lodge, was inspired by his experiences growing up in an Anishinaabe community and won an Independent Publishers Book Award in 2012. His debut novel, Legacy, followed in 2014. His latest novel, Moon of the Crested Snow, was released in October of 2018 and became a national bestseller. In 2014, he received an Anishinaabek Nation's Debwewin Citation for Excellence in First Nation Storytelling. 
He left CBC in 2020 to focus on his literary career, which we are all very excited about. And it's really an honor to have you joining us here today. So miigwech. No miigwech. Very honored to be here. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much for inviting me to visit with you all. Um, so normally I always have the students start first because I think it's really important to have youth lead, but you're a little bit of a different uh, case for me today because you and I actually have a shared experience that I've never had with one of our guests before, uh, and I thought it would be a great starting point. So you and I were both Rotary Exchange students in the same year, mm-hmm. and I thought it would be a great spot for, for us to learn about why you became an author and kind of how that experience shaped you. Oh, yeah. Um, well, that experience really changed my life. Uh, it really got me onto the path of journalism uh, at a time when I didn't really know what I wanted to do in terms of a career or for post-secondary education. Uh, so going back, as you mentioned, Aaron, it's uh, about 25 years ago now that uh, we, we were both in the same year departing on our uh, year-long voyages. Um, but for me, that was back in the day uh, when if you wanted to go to university, you had to do what was what were called OAC courses uh, in Ontario High School. And fortunately, you guys don't have that anymore. So, you know, you just have to graduate from grade, grade 12, luckily. But we had an extra year to do if we wanted to do university back in those days, right? So I was finishing up my grade 12 year and uh, just didn't know what I wanted to be, didn't know where I wanted to go to school or for what or anything like that. So I learned of this exchange program and uh, I told my parents about about it. And they thought it was a good idea. They thought it would be uh, an excellent opportunity for me to sort of figure out what I want to do with my life, but also, you know, travel the world and have, um, you know, a really cool immersive experience in another country. So uh, I was selected to go to Germany for a year and I ended Ended up uh, going to a town called Bracca, which is uh, about an hour northwest of Hamburg, right up in the northern Germany, right? Um, not far from the North Sea and not far from uh, the Netherlands. Um, so I went there, uh, you know, I did all the orientation, did all the preparations and all that. And before I went there, I was contacted by a local newspaper here in Northern Ontario called the Nishnabek News. And they asked me if I wanted to write monthly articles for them about my experiences as a Nishnabek kid in, uh, in the European country. And I thought that sounded like a really cool idea uh, because, you know, I, English was my favorite class uh, in high school. I really liked writing and I really liked reading. And and just in terms of my everyday life, I had a general curiosity of the world around me. And, you know, I read the newspaper every day and I watched, you know, CBC News every night and so on. Right. So uh, that was sort of my first exposure to journalism. You know, I didn't really know that you could make a career from writing up until that point. And, um, you know, I just didn't have anybody in the high school setting really pushing me in that direction, you know, despite, you know, having good marks in those kinds of classes. Uh, so, yeah, this newspaper, the Nishnabek News, the editor's name was Dave Dale. He said, uh, we'll pay you 100 bucks every time you write something for us. So, you know, it uh, totally blew my mind because back then, you know, in the 90s, 100 bucks was a lot of money for a teenager, for a 17-year-old uh, guy. Uh, so I thought, yeah, that sounds like a really cool opportunity. And I went over there and had some really eye-opening experiences. Um, you know, had a lot of uh, stereotypes to deal with about Indigenous people. Um, but there 
were more they were mostly like friendly kind of funny experiences rather than really um troubling or problematic sort of racist ones they they just had really no idea about the realities of indigenous life uh, outside of pop culture right so you know um my first day at school there uh they all came to see me uh, arrive that day because they heard that there was an indian quote-unquote Indian from Canada coming to their school. Uh, I found out later it's because they thought, like, there was going to be an Indian coming in with, like, no shirt and just wearing a loincloth and, like, long hair and braids and all that. <laughs> uh, but I, I showed up, like, much like I'm dressed today, like a black T-shirt and jeans, and I had I had short hair back then, right? So uh, that was really funny. And and they told me afterwards that they were expecting, like, a Winnetou kind of figure. And this is this stereotypical uh, Indian figure that, you know, European pop culture is 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 sort of known for right um so i wrote about stuff like that and uh when i did a monthly article for them um and then when i came back a year later i applied to journalism school at uh, ryerson university and i had my last year of high school to do and then went to uh, journalism school and uh that sort of started me on uh my media journey i guess you could say so yeah that experience changed my life and it made me who i am today absolutely yeah, well, thanks for, for sharing that. Uh, you could have left out the 25 years ago part, though, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> you didn't have to date us quite like that, but <laughs> I'll forgive you. <laughs> um, no, thank you. And I just thought that was such an interesting start, you know, and, and for me, it, I know it was definitely a, a life-changing moment as well. So, um, yeah, thanks. And, and exciting for students, right? I think a lot of, especially being in the North, a lot of our kids... Um, struggle with kind of what that culture shock is of leaving home and um and for you to have experienced such a unique opportunity is is great for our kids to hear about um joe now that i've taken over and let it <laughs> it's time to let the youth um ask some of their questions so go for it okay thanks um first question we have here for uh lob is who inspires you as an author or as a person Oh, you know, a lot of people inspire me. Um, I would say, you know, the biggest inspirations for me uh, in my life from, you know, a young age um, has been my family. Uh, you know, my grandparents specifically, uh, you know, my my one grandmother who was from the reserve. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time with her growing up there. And uh, she, she passed away about three years ago. But she was really influential on me and uh, making sure that I knew, you know, my history as an Anishinaabe kid, that I knew a lot about my culture, um, that uh, I had, you know, sort of a strong world perspective of my place uh, sort of in society. Um, because she was really, uh, I would say, a trailblazing kind of person in, in really fighting for Indigenous rights and fighting for Indigenous women specifically, right? So she was a huge role model for me. Um, but also my grandmother, uh, who was from town, you know, I, I am of both Anishinaabe and settler descent. Um, and, you know, she was also a really strong-willed woman who um, was just, you know, a very um, kind, uh, respectful, open-minded kind of person. 
and and you know when I think back to how my parents came together like my dad's from the res my mom's from town um, that was back in the 1970s you know back when that didn't happen as much as it did today so you know I give credit to both sides of the family that I'm from and and really coming together and creating you know um, good relationships right uh, so I, I've had that example set for me since a really young age and I think that's what I've tried to carry forth not just with my journalism but just with what I try to do every day as a regular person you know um just be open-minded just be caring uh be respectful and and you know try to um set an example in some ways of how you know good relationships can happen um so yeah having these elders in my life um from a very young age has sort of set me on this course that I try to stay on you know and uh but on the flip side you know the people who continue to inspire me today are the young people you know uh young people from First Nations, but also young people who um, partner with other young people from First Nations and create good relationships and friendships and, you know, try to find ways to make this a good place for everybody, right? Um, Because it really depends on all of us working together, you know, and there's a lot of work to do. Um, There are a lot of real um, hard things to overcome. There is, you know, a really tough history with this country and specifically how Indigenous people have been treated. Um, have been abused, you know. Um, But, you know, when I see young people nowadays going to, you know, high school, they learn about these things more so than I did when I was in high school back in the 1990s, right? Hopefully, you know, you'll be able to take some of what I've said, some of the insights I've learned over the course of my life and and hopefully apply them to your lives and uh, find ways to keep those good relationships going. So, uh, yeah, it's the elders and the young people who inspire me. Not so much the people my age because, you know, they're boring. I I know what everybody my age does and, and so on right so uh yeah those are the people who keep me going for sure can i just build off of that one of my questions actually is around this this truth and reconciliation and in your novel it really is in um a metaphor for for colonization in canada and i'm just wondering are there truths that you think um we were still refusing to see do you think that there are things that um that Canadians still need to come to terms with before reconciliation can really even happen? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) And I see this daily, mostly online, mostly on social media, right? Just these stubborn racist attitudes that refuse to acknowledge what this country is responsible for, you know, how Canada has brutalized Indigenous people, taken advantage of them, exploited their lands, and really left them to suffer without the resources that they need to create viable, healthy communities, right? And and without that context, without that knowledge of history, people just assume that Indians, quote-unquote, are, are, are deadbeats, are losers, are victims, are perpetrators of violence. And the media has done a really poor job in sort of historically um, erasing those attitudes. You know, media has perpetuated some of those falsehoods about Indigenous realities, right, by not offering that context. Because the way it has happened over the course of many decades is, you know, people haven't learned the true history of this country in schools, you know. Um, So... 
that said, you know, until everybody is educated and aware of what exactly has happened in this country, you know, like this notion of reconciliation is, isn't quite possible. And unfortunately, you have really influential people, like including politicians, who refuse to acknowledge those realities, right, who are in denial about the hardships that Canada has created for Indigenous communities. And because, you know, it really sort of obliterates this myth that we've all been sort of bringing Washington to believing about Canada being this kind, benevolent country that's not like the United States, right? And, and you know, acknowledging that residential schools happened, that, you know, thousands of children died in these places, these state, you know, run um, uh, institutions that were meant to erase culture and identity, um, people refused to acknowledge that that actually happened, right? But in the United States, you know, there is a wide acceptance of slavery and, and how that is a really dark uh part of the United States history, right? Um, Canadians have never had anything like that. And, and now they're just finally learning about the past horrors perpetrated by this country. And a lot of people refuse to accept that, you know, it's just because it sort of um, obliterates that myth, uh, that, as I mentioned, about Canada being just this harmonious, wonderful place, you know? So, uh, and there, you know, I, I would say it's predominantly older generations who, you know, are, are stubborn in, in accepting that and, you know, um, teaching younger generations about it. But I believe we'll get there because over the course of my life, I've seen attitudes improve so greatly, you know, from the time I was your age uh, up until now. Um, so, yeah, that, that's what it's going to take to get to this point where there is a common understanding of, of what this country is and what the history is. But, you know, when, when we talk about reconciliation, and this is sort of a side point, um, a crucial element to that, I think, is really ensuring that Indigenous languages uh, survive and thrive, you know. Um, it's what it's great to learn about history, and it's great to learn about uh, the social realities of Indigenous people, but I think governments need to fully fund language programs to ensure that languages survive, because governments are responsible for the destruction of Indigenous languages, right? So um, that's just a side note that I always try to uh, make whenever I'm talking about reconciliation. Yeah, absolutely. And and you've done such a good job of um, tying language to culture and the importance of of not just culture, but identity in your book, right? And and of of Evan's own struggle with trying to figure out who he is and where he's going while supporting his community in, in such a time of crisis. Just because you were talking about politics, and then I, I can tell there are more questions happening with, with Amy and Joe, sorry, but you were talking about politicians. Is Justin, was that intentional? Is that, <laughs> is that a connection? <laughs> No, that's totally okay. coincidental. And and it's it's funny because I get that question a lot. Okay. Um, I, I I just I just picked a, a name arbitrarily. Uh, right. like, okay, okay, what's this villain's name gonna be? Justin Scott. Sounds good, you know. Yeah. I, and some people wonder if that's like a, an amalgam of Justin Trudeau and and Duncan Campbell Scott, who is mm-hmm. one of that's the what I was wondering for sure. I was like, <laughs> is he just... connecting the dots for people who can't get this? <laughs> no, that's just like that's the sophistication and the intelligence of, of readers, you know. I'm like, wow, you know, everybody picked up on this thing that I sort of fluked into. Uh, but that wasn't the intention at all. It was just a random name, basically. Oh, wow. But it's always interesting to, to, to hear that. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry, Amy and Joe, you guys jump in. If you were to transform this novel into any other medium, graphic novel, stage play, short film, whatever, what would, what would you choose? 
I, I think it would look really cool as uh, on the screen, you know, as a series. Uh, it has been optioned by a producer. Um, you know, it's a long haul from, you know, a pitch to actual production, right? So uh, the producer who has the rights, he wants to do a six-part series. Uh, so it, it will be like, if it happens, fingers crossed, knock on wood, um, it would be like a slightly expanded story, right? So there will be more scenes that aren't in the book because the book is kind of short, you know, it's only like 220 pages. So to expand that to a six part series, you know, each episode is essentially its own story. Right. So um, the cool thing is, is this producer, his name is Robin Cass. He hired um, a writer named Ashlyn Halfnight to sort of come up with a pitch. And, and I consulted with him on that. So um, what, it is it's a six part series that would sort of stay true to the spirit of the book. But just again, as I mentioned, have a, a little bit more, um, not necessarily uh, context, but just more action, more drama, because that's how TV works. Right. You know, we all know what it's like to watch a series and we all see like, uh, you know, uh, how each episode kind of works. Right. So it's got, it's got to be a little bit reworked to sort of make it, you know, an actual series. Uh, but if it happens, you know, I, I would come on board to do the final writing. And, you know, the hope is that we would have, well, the non-negotiable for me coming into it was we absolutely need to have Indigenous directors, a director or directors do the do the each episode, right? And have majority Indigenous writers uh, in the writing room, right? Um, it's hard to say, you know, if or when it'll happen. Things are a little bit weird now because we all know what happened with uh, Trickster. Um, so there's a bit of a chill over the industry as a whole in Canada right now. And also that's due to a lot of big cuts too, you know, like Bell just cut its whole drama department and um, the pandemic has impacted various uh, funding avenues in, in different ways too. So um, he, the producer is going to keep handing out the pitch and hopefully it'll happen. We'll see. Yeah. Um, that would be very exciting. <laughs> I would love it. And, and Trickster was such a huge success, right? Oh, yeah. For, for me, I know it was, um, it was a real door for a lot of people who were, um, not sure how they felt about Indigenous storytelling even in mainstream. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and the success was incredible, especially with our youth coming from education, uh, the connection. I remember talking to one of the boys in the class and he was really, a, he, the first episode really bothered him. Uh, because he saw himself so much in Jared. Mm. And uh, I remember him saying to me, you know, the more everybody else in the class loved it, the more confident he got. So I just think mm. that representation um, would be incredible to see another story come to life in that way for, for our youth. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope it happens. Yeah. I think that would be amazing. Um, do, we, do you have another question, Joe? I've got tons of questions, so I can talk yeah, too yeah, much. Uh, yeah. Um... Next one is, we never really learned the full extent of what, what has happened outside of the community. Can you explain why you choose to write this way? And will your new novel explore the impact of the broader world, or will you continue to keep your focus on the community? 
Oh, great questions, Joe, you know, because I am totally immersed in writing the sequel right now. Um, so I, I actually, before I came on the call with you all, I just finished up another part, uh, you know, writing out a few different paragraphs. Um, to answer your first question, uh, the reason the cause of the blackout is so mysterious is just to build tension, just to add suspense. And I think the reality is if this really happened and there was a far northern community um, that wasn't as easily accepted, accessible uh if there was you know a power and communications outage uh, you wouldn't find out uh right away and you may not ever find out you know what exactly happened uh, to cause you know this big collapse uh so in the book you sort of get a, a, a little glimpse of the outside world because the the two young guys come back from from college in the city right and then they're followed by those other people too um so you have an idea of the chaos that sort of ensues as a result of that uh, collapse but you never really find out what what happens and and i did that on purpose because i think you you wouldn't really find out if you're isolated like that um but also it, it would wouldn't really become a priority uh to find out if you're wrapped up in just trying to keep everybody alive and trying to keep the community going right um and you know, I was sort of inspired by other dystopian or post-apocalyptic books that don't reveal the cause, like uh, The Road by Cormac McCarthy. That's a post-apocalyptic novel. You, you never find out in that story why the world ended. Uh, even a book like Lord of the Flies, which you all may have read in, in, in English class, um, you know, you don't really find out why these boys ended up on this island or, or sort of what's going on. You sort of get a glimpse of, like, this battle scene in the sky at one point between planes, but, again, you don't really find out anything else. Right. So that was intentional for sure, just for the sake of suspense. But with uh, with the second part of the story, I kind of owe it to people to give them a glimpse of a little bit of something. Right. Because <laughs> I don't think anybody's going to want to read a whole other part and not get any answers uh, as to what exactly happened. So with the second part of the story, uh, basically, it takes place 10 years after the end of Moon of the Crested Snow. And the community itself, you, you may remember in the story, they talk about how they were displaced from the Great Lakes to far northern Ontario, right? So they decide that, you know, after all this time being up north, they want to go south um, to see what's left of the world. Uh, but they also want to reconnect with their original homeland in hopes of one day eventually settling there. And the reason is, like, the resources in where they are now, the resources start to deplete a little bit. Um, you know, the, the fish start you know, uh, dwindling the numbers of fish and, you know, they can't hunt as much as they used to. So they realize, oh, geez, you know, traditionally Nishnabek people uh, traveled all over the place to follow their food or to set up settlements and so on. So uh, they've been in this place for so long that they figured, you know, maybe it's time to go now. So they send a team of six people uh, down to the South as sort of an exploratory mission. And along the way, and, and I got to be super careful about uh, giving anything away, but along the way they come across various uh, elements that sort of, um, tell them more about what happened to the world and and you sort of do eventually learn um what might have happened at the same time though it's all like hypothesizing right like the people they meet along the way um have a little bit more info than they did when everything happened and they sort of start piecing everything together so yeah when you read the second part you'll you'll learn a little bit more about what happened no, I can't wait. <laughs> I was sharing with Wob that uh, my mother-in-law belongs to a book club, um, and so they're all they've all read it, or they're in the process of reading it. But she read it in like two days, and she's 
um, she's upset because she wants to know what happens next. And she says, you know, I'm not a spring chicken, so you better hurry up. <laughs> um, just because you were talking about kind of the reality of the situation that you've created, you wrote this before the pandemic. Um, and then as the pandemic unfolded, we started to see um, some insane parallels, like the couple flying up to, to the Yukon to get uh, get away from the pandemic. And then again, mm-hmm. happening another couple from BC going up to get the vaccine. Like, yeah. did that blow your mind? Were you just freaking out that these things were actually happening? A little bit. Yeah, it was weird. <laughs> you know, um, in terms of the other parallels, uh, you know, the panic buying wasn't too much of a surprise because that has happened before. You know, whenever there's like a storm coming, uh, people will go up and buy all the water or whatever else from the grocery store, right? And you, you won't see any, uh, you'll see these big empty gaps on the shelves, you know, and that happens every time there's a big event coming or a big event that happens. So, uh, you know, people mention that often, but I'm like, that that's not totally outside the realm of possibility because we see that happen on a regular basis, right? Uh, but yeah, the people flying up to Northern Yukon, that was pretty mind-blowing. And um, I, I thought like... You know, the audacity, of course, um, of, you know, of them to actually go and do that is like totally uh, gross in a lot of ways. Uh, it's very exploitative. Um, and, you know, and, and even the couple of that recently went to get that vaccine. Like that is just that is just ridiculous. Um, but like the the character of Justin Scott, you know, the first one who goes up in the book, um, I, I really struggled when I was writing it, uh, whether that was believable. Um, so I was about a month into writing the story and that was always going to be a big part of the plot. You know, you know, there's this blackout. Uh, people are struggling to figure out what's going on and, you know, keep the lights on and keep everybody fed. Then all of a sudden the guy comes up from the city and just upsets the balance even further and chaos ensues and so on. That was always going to be the main part of the, of the story. Right. Uh, but when I was writing and I thought, Oh, I, I just don't know if people are going to believe this. You know, I don't know if a reader will get to this point and then think, well, that is totally out of left field. That would never happen. Uh, this book is bunk. I'm not going to read it anymore. Right. So I had that real crisis early on. But uh, I went to, it was when my wife and I were living in Ottawa before we had kids and we went to a Halloween party and I met a guy who said that we just started talking about the apocalypse because that's all I was thinking about because I was writing this book about it. And uh, he said, yeah, yeah, the first place I'm going is the res. And I said, oh, yeah. Uh, which res? And he said, the closest one I can get to. I'm just getting in my truck and I'm driving to a res. And I said, okay, what, why would you want to do that? And he said, well, you know, like I could, I could hide out there. People there know how to hunt. And, uh, you know, I figure, I figure it's going to be a good place to be when the world ends. And I was like, I didn't say this to him, but I was like, that's, that's pretty presumptuous, man, that you think you can just go to the res and like settle in and everybody's going to accept you and like, and all that. And, and uh, I was like, okay, you know, I, I went home that night and I was like, okay, there's one guy who believes that so you know justin scott is believable at least in some degree right uh to some degree so uh, that's that's how the sort of um origin of justin scott came about and then to see that happen in reality it was just like totally weird um and and you know i feel kind of guilty like you know i hope i don't give anybody any ideas about you know the end of the world the how-to book yeah, exactly. yeah. so yeah so that, that was that was that was weird for sure <laughs> yeah we read the articles too and it it, it it blew us away but then um like you said it, it is believable uh when you break it down uh you touched uh onto like the connection that i had planned and you want to ask you um if you can see how your connection to 
that may influence that you're writing or some other things that you read? You know, um, is this another inspiration? Did you say the connection to the land? Is that yeah. what you said? Yeah, the connection to the land. Like my personal experience with the land and how that, yeah. And uh, how it influences your writing. Like how does Oh, that, yeah. yeah. Uh, quite a bit. Quite a bit. Um, I grew up in on the reserve. You know, back then, uh, we didn't have hydro or running water in, in our house. So uh, up until I was like eight or nine years old, that was my way of life, right? Um, you know, I chopped a lot of wood. I went to the well and pumped water. And, you know, I went out to the bush to gather, you know, food like berries and, and medicines and stuff like that. Um, I would help my dad, you know, bring the net in because we ate a lot of fish because we live right on Georgian Bay. So that's uh, how we um, ate most of the time, right? We I would set a net and uh, we'd keep some for ourselves and share some with our family and so on. And um, we did some hunting, but that wasn't a huge part of my upbringing. Like I went out on hunts with like my dad and, and uncles and other relatives, but um, uh, that wasn't a major, uh, I guess, part of our food sort of security, I guess. It was mostly fishing, right? And also going into town to buy groceries. Like that's not only how we ate, but that was a big part of how we ate. Uh, so yeah, I, I feel very fortunate that I had that upbringing and that close connection to the land. And for me, it's like, it's very therapeutic now just to be out in nature like even just to sit in the bush for a little while or to sit by the water like that's that's what I do and I feel like I need to disconnect from the stresses of everyday life and then reconnect with the, the land itself so fortunately where we live in Sudbury like we're pretty close to downtown but we're only about a 15 minute walk from Ramsey Lake which is the big lake in in downtown Sudbury and uh, yeah just going there is a real uh, important part of my regular routine you know I don't do it every day but you know if I get stressed out or if I need some natural inspiration I'll, I'll go down there so um yeah I think I've always had like a really deep respect for the land you know I've understood my place on the land and my responsibilities to it as an Anishinaabe person and you know the importance of giving back on a regular basis and and I think the key message uh, that I tried to get across in Moon of the Crusted Snow was that you know if everything falls away, uh, we still have the land. The land is there for us, right? And it has sustained us since time immemorial. And that's not just Indigenous people. That's people of all cultures around the world. You know, we've lived with the land in harmony and we've taken from it what we've needed and we've tried to give back to it too, you know? And that's just a, a really good way of life for all humans to follow. Um, you know, unfortunately though, within the last like 200 years or so with the acceleration of industrialization and then, you know, even in the last like 40, 50 years, like all kinds of different techniques technologies uh we've become a little more disconnected from that and and i think you know it's important to remember um just how i guess precarious these technologies can be and that's why a blackout ends the world in in sort of moon of the crest of snow and and you know everything becomes useless without power you know like cell phones computers you know an electric stove in the kitchen everything is useless right so uh and then they find you know that okay we don't need those things we can go to the land and that's how we can eat and that's how we can you know thrive and survive right so yeah just having that perspective from a very young age um really has benefited 
benefited me, I think, throughout the course of my life. But, you know, I've lived in cities since I was 19. I'm 41 now. So more than half of my life I've been in cities. So, you know, writing the book, too, was a bit of self-motivation to remember where I came from, uh, remember uh, my upbringing and, and the values I learned of being on the land and so on. And, uh, yeah, the hope is eventually to to not necessarily get back to that way of life, but do it more regularly, right? And and now, like, I'm fortunate that I live uh, I live closer to my res than I ever have, you know, being in Sudbury. It's only an hour and a half away. Uh, so, yeah, I, I go there more regularly. And, and we have a place there that we stay at in the summertime, a cabin there. And um, it's just wonderful. I love being able to do that. Yeah, and I, th- I think you're... Um, your book is we're talking about kind of the parallels and and how eerie it is uh, in terms of timing. But um, throughout the whole book, I feel like that connection to land um, always uh, sustained me as I read it and reminded me of of the gift that this this crisis has brought to all of us. Um, as as terrible as it's been for a lot a lot of people there's also this kind of silver lining and reminding us of of stripping us away from a lot of the other um, elements of our life you know having to slow down having to really prioritize our family and our friends and our connections with each other um i think that comes through a lot in the book too just you know mm-hmm. if this if this is uh, a blackout ending the world if this is a pandemic that's really kind of shaking us up then underneath all of that we still have the land and we still have each other in those connections so for sure yeah, yeah. no that was awesome uh we only have a couple of questions left um and i know i know the question left for for amy and joe so i'm just gonna ask mine first because i want to kind of let their question be the end um but i just know it's got to be exhausting for you uh, writing writing another novel and balancing all of these requests from schools and book clubs and people who want to talk to you. Um, and as educators, we really have been working on trying to make sure that our connections are authentic and that we are building relationships. And for me personally, making sure that our youth see themselves represented, that we're not just talking about all of these great, you know, Indigenous leaders and authors and artists, but that we're actually making sure they see um, and meet and connect with with these leaders but on the flip side I know that it's got to just be killing you in terms of your your work-life balance so how do you how do you take care of yourself like what are you doing to to take care of yourself through all of this well, I would say that uh, being able to connect with uh, students is not a burden at all um, or, or with educators <clears throat> excuse me it is a great honor uh, to think back to my high school years when I was, you know, 16, 17, um, really keen on English class, uh, but not seeing myself reflected in English class whatsoever. To have my book discussed in the high school setting is is the greatest honor. And I say this every single time I visit with a classroom because I honestly mean it. It is the really the coolest thing for me to think back to when I was all your age, you students, and, and just wanting that representation. So it, it, in a way, I see it as, you know, paying it forward, you know, and hopefully, you know, by the time you all are you know my age or, or or you know around you know adulthood further down the line whether you're indigenous or non-indigenous you know you'll carry that spirit forward as well um because we are fortunate to be able to make these connections nowadays uh you know there's one silver lining of the pandemic too that you know if if 
everything was as it used to be, it would take a lot of travel for me to come and see you. And, and it may not necessarily be as, as feasible, you know, but we're able to connect uh, via somewhat reliable technology. And, and it's really, uh, it's really cool to be able to do this. So I will just say uh, Chimiguesh for inviting me. Like this is really the coolest thing. Um, one thing I've made a concerted effort to do uh, is not check social media and not check my email until the evening. So because I'm writing the sequel now, uh, I spend most of my day uh, while my older son's at school um, just doing as much writing as possible, you know. And I try to get to, like, between 1,000 and 2,000 words a day. Um, you know, that that's sort of the benchmark I try to follow. And if I don't follow that, I don't get stressed out about it because some days the words come and some days they don't, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I do have a deadline for the first draft of September, but, you know, I've set a personal deadline of like May or June to actually get that first draft done. And, and I'm feeling confident that I'll, I'll make it um, to that point. Uh, but in terms of other uh, modes of self-care, as I mentioned, and go, going outside, going for a walk, going down to the water, even though it's totally frozen over right now, it's still nice to be there. Um, just going out into my backyard, being in the bush, um, being around my my two sons and my wife, you know, like, of course, we've only seen each other for many, many months. Uh, but, you know, that's that's a blessing. You know, I, I, I get to see my two little boys growing and, and I'm there every day with them, which is really neat. So um, I'm thankful for that opportunity because, you know, someday I'll look back on this and think oh wow that was really special that mm-hmm. i got to spend like almost a whole year just with uh just with my two little guys and my wife you know so mm-hmm. that's that's pretty nice so yeah keeping that perspective is also important for self-care uh physical activity for sure you know of course that's not always possible with gyms being closed and locked down or so on but i try try to go to the y to maybe go on the treadmill or or lift some weights or i do brazilian jiu-jitsu too um so i'm, I'm into martial arts um you know that hasn't been as possible with the pandemic but you know, it's, it's part of my regular routine. Uh, and yeah, just things like smudging, taking some time just to uh, be thankful, uh, be mindful of, you know, myself and of the world around me um, and trying to stay in touch with as much family as possible. You know, like everybody's going through a really hard time right now. Um, and, you know, it, it may not necessarily be um, even though we can easily access each other, you know, a lot of people are burnt out with like looking at screens and maybe even just talking on the phone, but trying to find different ways to connect is really good too. <clears throat> and just, you know, trying to keep an open mind about everything, you know, just um, understanding that this will be over. Like there is a light at the end of this. There are brighter days ahead. It's just super tough right now in the winter, right? Because mm-hmm. like it's cold, there's snow everywhere. You know, the lockdown just lifted here in Sudbury last week. So, you know, now we can go like to a coffee shop if we want. Um, but yeah, you know, just, uh, just talking, talking things out as much as I can too, you know, um, I think when you're a young person too, especially in your teens and maybe, um, like you may, you may be apprehensive or you may be scared to express, you know, how you're feeling, you know? Um, but I think younger people nowadays are way more equipped to do that. You know, there are discussions happening that, you know, my peers didn't have at all when we were your age, you know, like it was very much a, a different world back then where people, you know, made fun of you for expressing emotions or, 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 or just, you know, um, feeling down like you, you couldn't really express that openly, you know, but um, I'm encouraged by the generation coming up uh, in, in that we are having, you know, more open discussions and we'll have a more tolerant and open-minded society, which is great. So yeah, I remind myself of those things too. That's part of my self-care.
just because uh, what you said with connection land or you're asked um, you know, time spent on the reserve, a lot of students are asking me if, you know, Evan might be based on yourself or somebody that you personally know as well. I'm kind of speaking in a second one here. How many endings did you come up with for Moon and the Crest before you kind of had your final ending or did you already know that? Uh, Good questions. Uh, well, Evan, uh, he's not based on me for sure. I would say I aspire to be like Evan. You know, Evan, uh, he's very skilled. He's very uh, resourceful, you know, uh, you know, as, you know, just you know, a regular guy in the community, uh, but also as like, you know, a family man and, and so on. Uh, so he's like a combination of a bunch of people I know, a bunch of people I look up to um, from my home community. Uh, you know, people who um, have hunting skills, people who have some cultural knowledge, people who are working to get more cultural and ceremonial knowledge, uh, people who are very generous, very kind, uh, put others before them, um, and, and do that all without seeking praise. You know, I think that's what I, I love the most about Evan is that he just does these things because they're the right thing to do. He doesn't want to be celebrated for doing any of those things. And I think most people in First Nations are like that. And, and part of writing Evan like that was really about pushing back against stereotypes um, because, you know, the way that media has portrayed First Nations over the years is that, you know, there are just these uh, tragic figures and there aren't everyday people in communities, but that's the majority of people in First Nations are just everyday people like Evan, you know? So he, in many ways, he's the anti-hero too, even though he is like the leader who, who is sort of helping get everybody through this really dark time. Um, but he, you know, doesn't do it alone he does it with the help of everybody else of his buddies of his partner of the elders of his family members and so on right and i think that's more realistically how these sorts of situations would unfold so that's why i wanted to put like as many everyday people as i know in real life into evan um the the only uh similarity he has with me is his his last name is white sky and if you translate wabagizik that's white sky right and that <laughs> the only reason that happened was as a I was writing it uh i had all these characters right and i was like okay um i'm gonna have to give them last names because we're gonna have to the reader's gonna have to be able to differentiate from family to family right so i was like okay i'll just give evan uh the name white sky for now that's my name translated blah 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 i'll change it later uh but i never got around to changing it so <laughs> <laughs> he, got locked, he got locked into that last name and then I like, can't change it now. Right. <laughs> That's what it is. Good. Um, uh, to answer the second question about the ending, that was always how it was going to end. I, I would say I wrote the ending first. I didn't actually write it out, but I had the ending in my head from the beginning. That was always how it was going to be. And as I write the next one, I already have the ending planned too. Um, and I, I don't believe that's going to change. I think the ending is going to, does it lead uh, to a trilogy? No. no. Oh, okay. no. Oh. I, I can't, uh, as much as I love these characters and I love the, their community and I love the response from readers and the connection readers have with them. That's the reason why I'm writing a sequel, right? Is because of readers who are interested in them and, and they want to see what happens next in the story. I would have never pursued it otherwise if it wasn't for this interest, you know? Uh, but, you know, I don't think I'm necessarily ready to go back into an end of the world story again, because it's all I've been thinking about for like the past six, seven, eight years. So I got to write like after this book, I'm going to write like a, a bingo hall comedy. 
All right. Yeah. Absolutely. I got to totally change gears because it's like, uh, no more end of the world stuff for a while. So yeah. I, I will say no for now, uh, but you know, I'll never say never because I, I said I wasn't going to write a sequel in the first place. So we'll see, but it'll be like 15, 20 years down the line. <laughs> So here on Word Up, when we're when we're ending our podcast, we like to do something called the Fast Five. Basically, I'm going to ask you a question. You have to give me the first answer that comes to mind. So no thinking, just spit it out. You ready? Ready. Okay. Uh, can you teach us a word in Anishinaabe Moen? Sure. Um, Zagidawin, which means love. Zagidawin, love. Zagidawin. Okay. Uh, you love music. So who are you listening to right now? I am. Let me pull up my phone here, uh, my Apple Music, to see what the last thing I downloaded was. Um, it would have been. Oh, you know what? Uh, my four-year-old son. He's into Green Day, so I downloaded the, <laughs> the famous uh, Dookie album. So that's the last thing I listened to because my son wanted to hear Green Day. Will you make a playlist for your sequel? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I'm sort of. Uh, yeah, working through some songs now, but I will make a playlist for sure. That's awesome. Um, who is somebody that you think we should follow on social media? Oh, um, who should we follow? You know what? Uh, Richard Van Camp, the author, mm-hmm. uh, a show author from up north. Uh, he's always really positive. You know, he has some really uh, funny and enlightening stories. So follow him on Twitter and follow him on Facebook for sure. He's just a, just a beautiful guy. All awesome. Around. Uh, what are you thankful for today? Oh, I'm thankful for you all. I'm thankful for this opportunity uh, to share with you. And I'm thankful for your questions. So um, I, I and uh, having this opportunity is really great. And it reminds me to keep doing the work that I'm doing. It motivates me. It inspires me. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to visit with you all in some way, some, de- some way down the future, you know, so. That would be awesome. We would love that. Well, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Amy and Joe and everybody Hi. and Mackenzie. Please. Yeah. Okay, to me, Wedge. Take care, everybody. Bye bye. Once again, thank you to the staff and students from Roland Michener Secondary School in South Porcupine for joining me with this interview. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed it. I look forward to our next episode when I will be moving to Temiskaming District Secondary School in Temiskaming Shores, and I will be working with Courtney Barker and her students to interview the author of Crow Winter and a member of Temiskaming First Nation, Karen McBride. Until then, word up, fist down.